Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of The Magical Monarch of Moe by L. Frank Baum. This is your narrator, Jim Campanella. Moe was written in 1900 by Baum and published just after the original Wonderful Wizard of Oz book. Unlike the Oz books or any of the other Baum books that we have presented so far, this is not a book-length story, but an anthology of a series of stories. It is a collection of 14 surprise stories about the magical kingdom of Mo, its king, and its people. Mo, besides being a two-letter name, is a lot like Oz. It is an enchanted land where marvelous things happen, where animals talk, and where people do not die. If you remember the happenings in the Scarecrow of Oz book, Trot and Cap'n Bill discovered that Mo is a land where chocolates grow on trees, snow is popcorn, and rain is lemonade. By the way, notice the alliteration in the title, a lot like The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. Magical Monarch of Mo was not a mistake on the part of Baum or his publishers. They both realized that a bit of marketing would sell more of this book if people more quickly associated it with his very popular Oz book, hence the alliteration. In fact, Baum originally entitled it, before the change, The Beautiful Valley of Funnyland. You will find many of the familiar magical themes that eventually arise in the Oz books and other stories, albeit in a more nascent form. One of the short stories is a very strange treat indeed. If you are fans of the French author Pierre Boulet, you will wonder why the descendants of Baum never sued him. Boulet wrote The Planet of the Apes, the book from which the movie was based. In this collection is a short story, The Land of Civilized Monkeys. This is a story about a young man who lands from the sky into a civilization run by apes. He is roped and caged as a wild animal. He is put on display and examined by ape scientists as the possible missing link from which apes descended. Sound familiar? Baum published it in 1900 or so, and it makes you wonder. And now, the magical monarch of Mo. To the reader. This book has been written for children. I have no shame in acknowledging that I, who wrote it, am a child also. For since I can remember, my eyes have always grown big at tales of the marvellous, and my heart is still accustomed to go and pit-a-pat when I read in impossible adventures. It's the nature of children to scorn realities, which crowd into their lives all too quickly with advancing years. Childhood is the time for fables, for dreams and for joy. These stories are not true. They could not be true and be so marvellous. No one is expected to believe them. They are meant to excite laughter and to gladden the heart. Perhaps some of those big grown-up people will poke fun at us, at you for reading these nonsense tales of the magical monarch, and at me for writing them. Never mind. Many of the big folk are still children, even as you and I. We cannot measure a child by a standard of age or size. The big folk who are children will be our comrades. The others we need not consider at all, for they are self-exiled from our domain. L. Frank Baum, June 1903 The First Surprise The Beautiful Valley of Mo. I dare say there are several questions you would like to ask at the very beginning of this history. First, who is the monarch of Mo? And why is he called the Magical Monarch? And where is Mo anyhow? And why have you never heard of it before? And can it be reached by a railroad or a trolley car? Or must one walk all the way? 
These questions, I realize, should be answered before we, that we means you and the book, can settle down together for a comfortable reading of all the wonders and astonishing adventures I shall endeavor faithfully to relate. In the first place, the monarch of Mo is a very pleasant personage, holding the rank of king. He is not very tall, nor is he very short. He is midway between fat and lean. He is delightfully jolly when he is not sad, and seldom sad if he can possibly be jolly. How old he may be, I have never dared to inquire. But when we realize that he is destined to live as long as the Valley of Mo exists, we may reasonably suppose the monarch of Mo is exactly as old as his native land. And no one in Mo has ever reckoned up the years to see how many they have been. So we will just say that the monarch of Mo and the Valley of Mo are each a part of the other and cannot be separated. He is not called the Magical Monarch because he deals in magic, for he doesn't deal in magic. But he leads such a queer life in such a queer country that his history will surely seem magical to us who inhabit the civilized places of the world and think that anything we cannot find a reason for must be due to magic. The life of the Monarch of Mo seems simple enough to him, you may be sure, for he knows no other existence. And our ways of living, could he know of them, would doubtless astonish him greatly. The land of Mo, which is ruled by the king we call the Magical Monarch, is often spoken of as the Beautiful Valley. If they would only put it on the maps of our geographies, and paint it pink or light green, and print a big round dot where the king's castle stands, it would be easy enough to point out to you its exact location but I cannot find the Valley of Mo in any geography I have examined. So I suspect the men who made these instructive books really know nothing about Mo, else it would surely be on the maps. Of one thing I am certain, that no other country included in the maps is so altogether delightful as the beautiful Valley of Mo. The sun shines all the time and its rays are perfumed. The people who live in the valley do not sleep because there is no night. Everything they can possibly need grows on the trees, so that they have no use for money at all, and that saves them a great deal of worry. There are no poor people in this quaint valley. When a person desires a new hat, he waits till one is ripe, and then he picks it and wears it without asking anyone's permission. If a lady wishes a new ring, she examines carefully those upon the ring tree, and when she finds one that fits her finger, she picks it and wears it upon her hand. In this way, they procure all they desire. There are two rivers in the land of Mo, one of which flows milk of a very rich quality. Some of the islands in Milk River are made of excellent cheese, and the people are welcome to spade up this cheese whenever they wish to eat it. In little pools near the bank, where the current does not flow swiftly, the delicious cream rises to the top of the milk, and instead of water lilies, great strawberry leaves grow upon the surface, and the ripe red berries lie dipping their noses into the cream, as if inviting you to come and eat them. The sand that forms the river bank is pure white sugar, and all kinds of candies and bonbons grow thick on the low bushes, so that anyone may pluck them easily. These are only a few of the remarkable things that exist in the beautiful valley, the people are merry, light-hearted folk, 
who live in beautiful houses of pure crystal, where they can rest themselves and play their games and go in when it rains. For it rains in Mo as it does everywhere else, only it rains lemonade, and the lightning in the sky resembles the most beautiful fireworks, and the thunder is usually a chorus from the opera Tannhauser. No one ever dies in this valley, and people are always young and beautiful. There is a king and a queen, besides several princes and princesses. But it is not much use being a prince in Mo, because the king cannot die. Therefore, a prince is a prince to the end of his days, and his days never end. Strange things occur in this strange land, as you may imagine, and while I relate some of these, you will learn more of the peculiar features of the beautiful valley. The Second Surprise The Strange Adventures of the King's Head A good many years ago, the magical monarch of Mo became annoyed by the purple dragon, which came down from the mountains and ate up a patch of his best chocolate caramels just as they were getting ripe. So the king went out to the sword tree and picked a long sharp sword and tied it to his belt and went away to the mountains to fight the purple dragon. The people all applauded him saying one to another, Our king is a good king. He will destroy this naughty purple dragon and we shall be able to eat the caramels ourselves. But the dragon was not alone naughty. It was big and fierce and strong and did not want to be destroyed at all. Therefore the king had a terrible fight with the purple dragon, and cut it with his sword in several places, so that raspberry juice which ran in its veins squirted all over the ground. It is always difficult to kill dragons. They are by nature thick-skinned and tough, as doubtless everyone has heard. Besides, you must not forget that this was a purple dragon, and all scientists who have studied deeply the character of dragons, say that those of purple color are the most disagreeable to fight with. So all the king's cutting and slashing had no other effect upon the monster than to make him angry. Forgetful of the respect due to a crowned king, the wicked dragon presently opened wide its jaws and bit his majesty's head clean off from his body. Mm. Then he swallowed it. Of course the king realized it was useless to continue the fight after that, for he could not see where the dragon was. So he turned and tried to find his way back to his people. But at every other step he would bump into a tree, which made the naughty dragon laugh at him. Furthermore, he could not tell in which direction he was going, which is an unpleasant feeling under any circumstances. At last some of the people came to see if the king had succeeded in destroying the dragon, and found their monarch running around in a circle, bumping into trees and rocks, but not getting a step nearer to home. So they took his hand and led him back to the palace, where everyone was filled with sorrow at the sad sight of the headless king. Indeed, his devoted subjects, for the first time in their lives, came as near to weeping as an inhabitant of the valley of Mo Ken. Never mind, said the king cheerfully. I can get along very well without a head, and as a matter of fact, the loss has its advantages. I shall not be obliged to brush my hair, or clean my teeth, or wash my ears. So I do not grieve, I beg of you, but be happy and joyful as you were before. Which showed the king had a good heart, and after all, a good heart is better than a head any day. The people hearing him speak out of the top of his neck, for he had no mouth, immediately began to laugh. 
which in a short time led to their being as happy as ever. But the queen was not contented. My love, she said to him, I cannot kiss you any more, and that will break my heart. Thereupon the king sent word throughout the valley that anyone who could procure for him a new head should wed one of the princesses. The princesses were all exceedingly pretty girls, and so it was not long before one young man made a very nice head out of candy and brought it to the king. It did not look exactly like the old head, but the face was very sweet nonetheless. So the king put it on, and the queen kissed it at once with much satisfaction. The young man had put a pair of glass eyes in the head with which the king could see very well after he got used to them. According to the royal promise, the young man was now called into the palace and asked to take his pick of the princesses. They were all so sweet and ladylike that he had some trouble in making a choice, but at last he took the biggest, thinking that he would thus secure the greatest reward, and they were married amidst great rejoicing. But a few days afterwards, the king was caught out in a rainstorm, and before he could get home his new head had melted in the great shower of lemonade that fell. Only the glass eyes were left, and these he put in his pocket and went sorrowfully to tell the queen of his misfortune. Then another young man, who wanted to marry a princess, made the king a head out of dough, sticking in the glass eyes. The king tried it on and found that it fit very well, so the young man was given the next biggest princess. But the following day the sun chanced to shine extremely hot, and when the king walked out it baked his dough head into bread, at which the monarch felt very light-headed, and when the birds saw the bread they flew down from the trees, perched upon the king's shoulder, and quickly ate up his new head, all but the glass eyes. Again the good king was forced to go home to the queen without a head, and the lady firmly declared that this time her husband must have a head warranted to last at least as long as the honeymoon of the young man who made it, which was not at all unreasonable under the circumstances. So a request was sent to all loyal subjects throughout the valley, asking them to find a head for the king that was neat and substantial. In the meanwhile, the king had a rather hard time of it. When he wished to go any place, he was obliged to hold out in front of him, between his thumb and forefingers, the glass eyes, that he might guide his footsteps. This, as you may imagine, made his majesty look rather undignified, and dignity is very precious to every royal personage. At last a woodchopper in the mountains made a head out of wood and sent it to the king. It was neatly carved, besides being solid and durable. Moreover, it fit the monarch's neck to a T. So the king rummaged in his pocket and found the glass eyes, and when these were put into the new head, the king announced his satisfaction. There was only one drawback. He couldn't smile, as the wooden face was too stiff. It was funny to hear his majesty laughing heartily also, while his face maintained a solemn expression. But the glass eyes twinkled merrily, and everyone knew that he was the same kind-hearted monarch of old, although he had become, of necessity, rather hard-headed. Then the king sent word to the woodchopper to come to the palace and take his pick of the princesses, and preparations were at once began for the wedding. But the woodchopper on his way to the court unfortunately passed by the dwelling of the purple dragon and stopped to speak to the monster. Now it seems that when the dragon had swallowed the king's head, the unusual meal had made the beast ill. It was more accustomed to berries and caramels for dinner than to heads, 
and the sharp points of the king's crown, which was firmly fastened to the head, pricked the dragon's stomach and made the creature miserable. After a few days of suffering, the dragon disgorged the head and not knowing what else to do with it, locked it up in a cupboard and put the key in his pocket. When the dragon met the woodchopper and learned that he had made a new head for the king and as a reward was to wed one of the princesses, the monster became very angry. It resolved to do a wicked thing, which will not surprise you when you remember the beast's purple color. Step into my parlor and rest yourself, said the dragon politely. Wicked people are most polite when they mean mischief. Thank you. I'll stop for a few minutes, replied the woodchopper. But I can't stay long, as I'm expected at court. When he entered the parlor, the dragon suddenly opened its mouth and snapped off the poor woodchopper's head. Being warned by experience, however, it did not swallow the head, but placed it in the cupboard. Then the dragon took from a shelf the king's head and glued it on the woodchopper's neck. Now, ha ha ha, said the beast with a cruel laugh. You're the king. Go home. Claim your wife and kingdom. The poor woodchopper was much amazed. At first, he did not really know which he was, the king or the woodchopper. He looked in the mirror and seeing the king made a low bow. Then the king's head thought, Who am I bowing to? There is no one greater than the king. And so at once, there began a conflict between the woodchopper's heart and the king's head. The dragon was mightily pleased at the result of its wicked stratagem, and having pushed the bewildered woodchopper out of the castle, immediately sent him on his way to the court. When the poor man neared the town, the people ran up and said, Why, Why this is, is the, the king, king come, come back, back again! again. All hell, your majesty! All nonsense, returned the woodchopper. I'm only a poor man with the king's head on my shoulders. You can easily see it isn't mine. It's crooked. The dragon didn't glue it on straight. Where is your head then? They demanded. Locked up in the dragon's cupboard, replied the poor fellow, beginning to weep. Here, cried the king's head. Stop this, you mustn't cry out of my eyes. The king never weeps. I beg pardon, your majesty, said the woodchopper meekly. I'll not do it again. Well, see that you don't, returned the head more cheerfully. The people were greatly amazed at this, and took the woodchopper to the palace where all was soon explained. When the queen saw the king's head, she immediately kissed it, but the king rebuked her, saying she must only kiss him. But it is your head, said the poor queen. Probably it is, replied the king, but it is on another man. You must confine yourself to kissing my wooden head. I'm sorry, sighed the queen, for I like to kiss the real head best. And so you shall, said the king's head. I don't approve of your kissing that wooden head at all. The poor lady looked from one to the other in perplexity. Finally, a happy thought occurred to her. Why don't you just trade heads? she asked. Just the thing, cried the king. The exchange was made and the monarch of Mo found himself in possession of his own head again. Whereat he was so greatly pleased that he laughed long and merrily. The woodchopper, however, did not even smile. He couldn't because of the wooden face. The head he had made for the king he now was compelled to wear himself. Bring hither the princesses, commanded the king. This good man shall choose his bride at once, for he has restored me to my own head. But when the princesses arrived and saw that the woodchopper had a wooden head, they each and all refused to marry him and begged so hard to escape that the king was in a quandary. 
I promised him one of my daughters, he argued, and a king never breaks his word. But he hadn't a wooden head then, explained one of the girls. The king realized the truth of this. Indeed, when he came to look carefully at the wooden head, he did not blame his daughters for not wishing to marry it. Should he force one of them to consent, it was not unlikely that she would call her husband a blockhead, a term almost certain to cause trouble in any family. After giving the matter deep thought, the king resolved to go to the purple dragon and oblige it to give up the woodchopper's head. So all the fighting men in the kingdom were got together, and having picked ripe swords off the sword trees, they marched in a great body to the dragon's castle. Now, the purple dragon realized that if it attempted to fight all this army, it would perhaps be cut to pieces. So it retired within its castle and refused to come out. The woodchopper was a brave man. I'll go in and fight the dragon alone, he said, and he went in. By this time, the dragon was both frightened and angry, and the moment it saw the man, it rushed forward and made a snap at his head. The wooden head came off at once, and the dragon's long, sharp teeth got stuck in the wood and would not come out again, so the monster was unable to do anything but flop its tail and groan. The woodchopper now ran to the cupboard, took out his head, and placed it upon his shoulders where it belonged. Then he proudly walked out of the castle and was greeted with loud shouts by the army, which carried him back in triumph to the king's palace. And now that he wore his own head again, one of the prettiest of the young princesses willingly agreed to marry him, so the wedding ceremony was performed amidst great rejoicing. The Third Surprise The Tramp Dog and the Monarch's Lost Temper one day, the monarch of Mo, having nothing better to do, resolved to go hunting blackberries among the bushes that grew at the foot of the mountains. So he put on an old crown that would not get tarnished if it rained, and having found a tin pail in the pantry, started off without telling anyone where he was going. For some distance, the path was nice, smooth taffy that was very agreeable to walk upon. But as he got nearer the mountains, the ground became gravelly, the stones being jackson balls and gumdrops, so that his boots, which were a little green when he picked them, began to hurt his feet. But the king was not easily discouraged, and kept on until he found the blackberry bushes, when he immediately began to fill his pail, the berries being remarkably big and sweet. While thus occupied, he heard a sound of footsteps coming down the mountainside, and presently a little dog ran out from the bushes and trotted up to him. Now there were no dogs at all in Mo and the king had never seen a creature like this before. Therefore he was greatly surprised and said, What are you, and where do you come from? The dog also was surprised at this question, and looked suspiciously at the king's tin pail, for many times wicked boys had tied such a pail to the end of his tail. In fact, that was the reason he had run away from home and found his way, by accident, to the Valley of Mo. <laughs> My name is Prince, <laughs> replied the dog gravely. And I come from a country beyond the mountains and the deserts. Indeed. Are you in truth a prince? exclaimed the monarch. Then you will be welcome in my kingdom, where we always treat nobility with proper respect. And why do you have four feet? Because six would be too many, replied the dog. But I only have two, said the king. I'm sorry, said the dog, who was something of a wag. 
because where I come from, it's more fashionable to walk on four feet. <laughs> I like to be in fashion, remarked the king thoughtfully. But what am I to do having only two legs? <laughs> well, I suppose you could walk on your hands and feet, <laughs> returned the dog with a laugh. So I will then, said the king, being pleased with the idea. And you shall come to the palace with me and teach me all the fashions of the country from whence you came. The king got down on his hands and knees, and was delighted to find that he could get along in this way rather nicely. How am I to carry my pail? he asked. In your mouth, of course. This suggestion seeming a happy one, the king took the pail in his mouth, and they started back toward the palace. But when his majesty came to the gumdrops and jackson balls, they hurt his hands and knees, so that he groaned aloud. But the dog only laughed. Finally they reached a place where it was quite muddy. Of course, the mud was only jelly, but it hadn't dried up since the last rain. The dog jumped over the place nimbly enough, but when the king tried to do likewise, he failed, and came down into the jelly with both hands and knees, and stuck fast. Now the monarch had a very good temper, which he carried in his best pocket. But as he passed over the gumdrop pebbles on his hands and knees, this temper dropped out of his pocket, and, having lost it, he became very angry at the dog for getting him into such a scrape. So he began to scold, and when he opened his mouth, the pail dropped out and the berries were all spilled. This made the dog laugh more than ever, at which the king pulled himself out of the jelly, jumped to his feet, and began to chase the dog as fast as he could. Finally, the dog climbed a tall tree where the king could not reach him. And when safe among the branches, he looked down and said, See how foolish a man becomes who tries to be in fashion rather than live as nature intended he should? You can no more be a dog than I can be a king. So hereafter, if you're wise, you'll be content to walk on two legs. There is much truth in what you say, replied the monarch of Mo. Come with me to the palace and you shall be forgiven. Indeed, we shall have a fine feast in honor of your arrival. So the dog climbed down from the tree and followed the king to the palace, where all the courtiers were astonished to see so queer an animal, and made a great favorite of him. After dinner the king invited the dog to take a walk around the grounds of the royal mansion, and they started out merrily enough. But the king's boots had begun to hurt him again, for as they did not fit being picked green, they had rubbed his toes until he had corns on them. So when they reached the porch in front of the palace, the king asked, My friend, what is good for corns? Tight boots, replied the dog, laughing. But they're not very good for your feet. Now the king, not having yet found his lost temper, became exceedingly angry at this poor jest. So he rushed at the dog and gave it a tremendous kick. Up into the air like a ball flew the dog while the king, having hurt his toe by the kick, sat down on the doorstep and nursed his foot, while he watched the dog go farther and farther up, until it seemed like a tiny speck against the blue of the sky. I must have kicked harder than I thought, said the king ruefully. There he goes, out of sight. I guess I shall never see him again. He now limped away into the back garden, where he picked a new pair of boots that would not hurt his feet, and while he was gone, the dog began to fall down again. Of course, he fell faster than he went up, and finally landed with a crash exactly on the king's doorstep. But so great was the force of the fall, and so hard the doorstep, that the poor dog was flattened out like a pancake, and could not move a bit. 
When the king came back, he said, Some kind friend has brought me a new doormat as a present. And he leaned down and stroked the soft hair with much pleasure. Then he wiped his feet on the new mat and went into the palace to tell the queen. When her majesty saw the nice soft doormat, she declared it was too good to be left outside, so she brought it into the parlour and put it on the floor before the fireplace. The good king was sorry he had treated the dog so harshly, and for fear he might do some other dreadful thing, he went back to the place where he had lost his temper and searched until he found it again, whereupon he put it carefully away in his pocket where it would stay. Then he returned to the palace and entered the parlour, but as he passed the mat, his new boots were so clumsy, he stumbled against the edge and pushed the mat together into a roll. Immediately the dog gave a bark, got upon its legs and said, Well, that's better. Now I can breathe again. But while I was so flat, I could not draw a single breath. The monarch and his queen were much surprised to find that what they had taken for a mat was only the dog that had fallen so flat on their doorstep. But they could not forbear laughing at his queer appearance. For as the king had kicked the mat on the edge, the dog was more than six feet long, and no bigger around than a lead pencil, which brought its front legs so far from its rear legs that it could scarcely turn around in the room without getting tangled up. But it's better than being a doormat, said the dog, and the king and queen agreed with him on this. Then the king went away to tell the people he had found the dog again, and when he left the palace he slammed the front door behind him, the dog started to follow the king out, so when the front door slammed it hit the poor animal so sharp a blow on the nose that it pushed his body together again, and lo and behold, there was the dog in his natural shape, just as he was before the king had kicked him. After this the dog and the king agreed very well, for the king was careful not to kick since he had recovered his temper, and the dog took care not to say anything that would provoke the king to anger. And one day, the dog saved the kingdom and all the Valley of Mo from destruction, as I shall tell you another time.